Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My guest today is Dr. Michael Bonder, who has written In Defense of Civilization, which I'm holding up here. And it says that he speaks Greek, Latin, Persian, Arabic, Arabic, Hebrew, and Mother French. And what languages don't you speak? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, if we say speak, you know, it's a slight exaggeration. But, um, Nassim Taleb, who wrote that, was being very generous, but he, um, he omitted uh, Armenian. So I, I do actually, I passed, I studied Armenian and I passed my exams in it. So, you know, I'm, I, I can claim that I know classical Armenian, but, you know, I don't, I, I wouldn't be able to, you know, have, have a conversation in, you know, in ancient Armenian or, uh, you know, uh, classical Syriac or Aramaic or whatever. I, I could probably fake my way through some Latin, uh, uh, you know, but w- w- once we once we had to start talking about anything, you know, sort of uh, up to date or modern or whatever, I probably wouldn't be able to do that. But yeah, that that's my background in languages, and uh, or the, that's where I started, sort of as a classicist, and and my interest in history grew from there. And mm. um, I discussed this. Speaking of what you mentioned, this I discussed this in an episode about Latin where a while ago that there's a difference, right, between actually reading Latin and like having a verbal conversation, like I studied a little bit of Spanish myself, so I can have a base conversation. I think in Spanish, I mean, mm. we'll get back to the history in a second, but I just want to mention this. But you know, it's kind of a difference between speaking verbally and studying nothing for structure than actually having a like conversation in nothing. For example, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're sort of. Uh hemmed in partly by vocabulary mm. um you know there's no latin word for nuclear submarine or uh you know computer things like that um although i think the vatican keeps a they keep a sort of word list of words that you can use but i'm, I'm not sure how uh you know why they... it would be. yeah uh but then of course there you know um the way the way you know, the texts that you have in front of you, like Virgil or Cicero, um, you know, nobody ever talked like Virgil. Um, and, you know, I, I think that um, Cicero is, you know, if you, if you compare that to sort of, you know, Latin inscriptions uh, that you, you know, that you find on walls or, you know, uh, papyri or, you know, the, um, you know, the, 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 the small number of documents that have survived, like you'll see that, that's kind of an idiosyncratic, uh, highly literary form of Latin, um, you know, which I, I think uh, is, you know, that's derived sort of mostly from Greek, um, you know, Greek examples and 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 highly polished and and, and intricate. Um, nobody really talked that way. 
So let's begin with your book and the title, In Defense of Civilization. How did that, it's a, it's a rather interesting title, I think, and how did it tell us how the book came about? Ah, right. Well, look, you know, let's, first of all, we should say the the title is just, you know, it's just a title. I mean, I, 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 the, there was one reviewer so far and he, he claimed he was all sort of disappointed and everything because, you know, um, uh, he, he expected, uh, you know, some sort of like list of things to do to, you know, literally defend civilization. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, we shouldn't take the title too literally, um the the book amounts to uh a defense or like a rehabilitation of the concept of civilization that it is a useful you know valuable meaningful uh concept that we should still use we should still use the word we should not um, forget it we should not um treat it you know ironically or anything like that um but you know you have to have some kind of title that's going to draw people in um the second half of the title uh, how our past can renew our present. You know, the clue is in there that mm-hmm. I wanted to write a book that sort of confronted, I think, some of the problems that uh, uh, the West in particular, but also all people, I think, everywhere in the world right now are faced with um, and sort of examine them from an historical perspective and to look at this sort of cycle of um what you might call the rise and fall of um civilization the rise and fall of states or the sort of um you know coming together of communities of people and then their dissolution and then coming back together again the fundamental idea was that um i wanted to show that a lot of the trends that people are upset about whether it's, you know, political fragmentation, the decline of um, uh, family formation, um, religious sectarian tensions, um, climate change, you know, whatever it is that people are worried about or, you know, uh, troubled by, that all of this uh, is, is old. We've seen it all before. We have got through it all before, sometimes not very well. Sometimes not at all. As we know, there are civilizations from the very, very ancient world that are no more and that were completely forgotten until they were dug out of the ground, like like Sumeria, uh, Sumer and Akkad and so forth. And so the idea that we are either on this sort of inexorable um, upward trend of progress or a sort of irreversible downward trend of um, decline and collapse and so forth. Neither of those are really true on their own, but there is a sense in which they are both true, that there is an ebb and flow to these things. And we can, you know, there are things that we can do that either accelerate or um, uh, arrest the decline and there are things that happen in the past that achieve sort of great revivals and improvements. And um, Europeans will probably immediately think of the Renaissance and so forth. But I wanted to show that that is part of a much larger pattern, as well as our present state of the thing, present state of decline or whatever you want to call it. It's all part of a much, much bigger picture, which makes 
far more sense, I think, if you sort of zoom out and see it all in a larger historical perspective. That's why I wanted to write the book. Uh, it came out of pandemic lockdowns. I wanted to have some kind of project. Um, I was, you know, like I think many people, I was very worried about the state of things and wanted to sort of come to grips with understanding it. And let's begin with, of course, as you open the book, what is civilization and what's a better place to start than ancient Rome, where I think, what immediately to think most people think about civilization. And I want to bring up, as you know, the Greeks and the Romans think of other people as barbarians who doesn't even like them. Of course, though, we know that barbary, as the Greek version is, of course, just people that don't speak Greek, as it originally means. Because, the, because let's begin talking about what the Roman civilization? Well, it's interesting that you mention this concept of being a barbarian. I mean, from the Greek perspective, the Romans would have been, um, you know, no less barbarous than, you know, not practically anyone else that they called barbarian. But of course, from the Greek perspective, from the Greek perspective, there was always a tension, I think, um, between. Um, you know, the, their, their sort of fear uh, of foreigners or uh, their fear of foreigners and their preference for themselves, uh, as well as, with, as, as well as a sort of uh, feeling of inferiority um, when, when confronted with the far older and more powerful cultures of the old world. So the two big ones are... Egypt and Persia. Plato was notably in awe of Egyptian achievements, um, particularly their very ancient, um, very ancient literary heritage and their far, far, far older, more expansive sense of history in comparison with the Athenians who, who were. Um, you know, new newcomers on the scene after the Bronze Age collapse. So for a guy like Plato, who obviously had a fair amount of confidence in his own civilization, he was um, in, you know, by no means, uh, you know, he, 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 he was perfectly content to learn things from Egyptians, to imitate them, so on. As for as for Persia, there's even greater ambivalence. You have this sort of fear and hatred of a sort of great power that's, uh, you know, really the center of the civilized world at that point. And Greece is sort of on the periphery. And yet, if, somehow, if I may do an analogy here, it was Persia was kind of what Islam would later be in the medieval world to the antique to the Greeks. They were kind of the Islamic world to the Europeans in in antiquity, if that's a decent analogy of things. Yeah, I think that's fair. So they would look at them, you know, with a mixture of admiration, envy, and, you know, there is some element of hatred there. But even if you if you read uh, Aeschylus or even certain passages in Plato, you can see that they acknowledge a well-ordered, powerful uh, state that was... Uh, a model of stability and and uh, and, and you know artistic and, and uh, cultural achievement, but those I don't want to give the impression that those two examples are somehow exceptional. They aren't really exceptional. 
consider what we know about the philosopher Pythagoras. Pythagoras is said to have traveled throughout the Near East, Egypt, and Syria, and to have picked up uh, his ideas from there. Now, that isn't uh, that isn't um, an aberration at all. The Greek alphabet came from the Near East. The um, much of their uh, m- much of their architectural structures are, 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 are concepts are originally inspired from um, Near Eastern models. So, my I wanted to show uh, as best I could that this idea of a of a kind of innovation that comes out of the Mediterranean uh, sort of Greco-Roman world that is somehow the foundation of our own civilization that 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 isn't true. Uh, it's not as though they had no achievements, but they are both harking back to a very distant past, so distant that they don't remember it. They've picked up the wreckage uh, from the uh, from after the Bronze Age collapse, and it has been sort of reassembled in the form of a common uh, Mediterranean civilization, which... Uh, the Greeks and their Phoenician trading friends pushed ever further westward, and the Etruscans uh, imitated this, and the the Etruscans were then imitated by uh, Rome. But of course, you have the example of Carthage, which Rome, you know, always portrayed as sort of the the, the great uh, enemy, the great evil empire that they. Uh, superseded, but they also imitated them. the the whole The whole concept of the of of a Mediterranean empire is fundamentally um, a Carthaginian one. Carthage itself being a colony of Phoenician uh, traders, and if Rome had not been able to, um, if Rome had not inherited the Mediterranean world as a unit, or more or less a unit. From Carthage, there would have been no, there would have been no uh, Roman Empire. So cultures, civilizations imitate one another. They look back to the past. They are rooted in the past. And what we, what used to be called the Greek miracle, this idea of this sort of explosion of innovation after the Bronze Age collapse, isn't true. No. I- I want to go back in time a little bit because we're going to talk about India and the, and the after, of course, Alexander's conquest. And it, so we are going back and forth here, but of course, the, it had massive consequences. The collapse of Alexander's newborn empire that didn't even yeah. last 10 years, I think, it's collapsed immediately. So what was the consequences of this for that gave birth to the Hellenistic age? Ah, you know, I, I I probably should have talked a little bit more about the the Hellenistic age, but I think that, um, I mean, I, I don't I don't want to belittle it, but I think that it was somewhat less influential than um, we might have we might prefer to think. This the notion of an international empire that sort of bestrides. Um, <clears throat> several continents with a sort of imperial center uh, and, and a sort of well-organized bureaucracy and so forth. That is, that, that has ancient precedent 
obviously in the Mesopotamian states, but on the scale that it reached later on, it's fundamentally an Iranian idea. And when Alexander the Great seizes the uh, Achaemenid Empire, basically swallowing it whole, you have a very brief moment where, um, you know, as someone like Plutarch would say, you have sort of the two, um, uh, you know, you have a sort of union of barbarian and 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 Greco-Macedonian uh, ruling over the entire civilized world. You know, obviously that's a big exaggeration, but the point the point is that uh, in very short order, the Macedonian conquerors of Iran get sucked into get pull, pulled by the gravitational force of that civilization into uh, something that is really, you know, quite different. It isn't exactly, you know, we call it Hellenism and so forth, but it's really, it's really, um, it, it, it's really the being pulled into the tide or, or the, the sort of dissolved into a larger Iranian civilization. And, uh, Ultimately, the Macedonian, you know, the Macedonian conquest, it just doesn't hold. It doesn't take. It's uh, it's uh, eventually superseded, well, superseded, I think, fairly quickly by another uh, Iranian uh, dynasty. And obviously you find, you know, there, there there's influence of, of Macedonian art or Greco-Macedonian art throughout um, throughout Eurasia. You find it cropping up in in Buddhist art. It's very beautiful, very attractive art from Gandhara and so forth. Um, but ultimately, Alexander is and his successors are trying to run a, an Iranian state. They intermarry with the locals. They um, uh, try to uh, carry on the legacy of the of the Achaemenids. Alexander being sort of the last of the Achaemenids and so forth. But it doesn't hold. They get absorbed. An Iranian dynasty replaces them. And, you know, that's that's that. It's an example of the potency, I think, of, um, of the Iranian concept of empire, Iranian civilization, religion, and so forth. And... Um, it's you know it's not the last time that this happens. It, it, it in in many ways it prefigures the uh, uh, Arab Islamic conquest of Iran, in which the Arabs also get sort of absorbed within a um, you know uh, sort of indigenous stream of civilization within Iran, and it's paralleled uh, with the the many sort of uh, nomadic conquests of China, uh, also. Um, but you mentioned also India. The Indian angle, I think, is very significant. I had not known about it until I sat down to write this book or had hardly reflected on it. Um, the Achaemenid Empire, the Iranian, the first Iranian Empire was extraordinarily influential on India. And the, um, the Mauryan state uh, owes a great debt to uh, Achaemenid models right down to borrowing the Aramaic alphabet, which was used to write um, uh, 
both the, it was used within the Achaemenid bureaucracy and used to write some of Ashoka's uh, inscriptions. The idea of building in stone, um, copying the architectural styles of the uh, palace at uh, Persepolis, and the the erection of uh, Ashoka's pillars all over India, marking the boundaries of his empire and so forth. And you know, you even wonder uh, uh, to to some extent whether the uh, Qin unification of China, which occurred, you know, at roughly the same time, whether that was also um, inspired in some measure by the memory of the Achaemenid Empire and by uh, uh, the Mauryan uh, state in India. Hmm. And of course, as you know, the Romans didn't mean talking about collapse of civilizations. The Romans did collapse eventually. And of course, this is where Thucydides start of the uh, or the Western Roman Empire collapsed eventually. Yeah. If you, if to direct myself, and this of course launched as we were talking about in the beginning, empires collapsed, civilization collapsed. So, how did Europe and the the remains of the Roman Empire, if you will, deal with the collapse? As we have stated this before on the podcast, that they didn't really. In the, at least in the beginning, they didn't really think of it as to collapse. For, for them, life just went, oh no, we're not Romans anymore. We're Italians now, now, you know. It wasn't like that, but, you know, of course, that, let's talk about after the aftermath of the Roman civilization. Hmm. Well, yeah, the, you know, at some point in the 20th century, the idea came about that what happened in Western Europe was not uh, a collapse. It was some sort of you know, very gradual evolution to something new. And although I agree, something new came, I mean, we we can't, we can no longer steer around the idea that there was indeed a, a violent and and uh, uh, precipitous uh, collapse uh, in the West. Roman, Roman, um, you know, Roman government uh, banished, uh, without which there was, you know, anarchy, pillaging, uh, violence everywhere. It, it, it was really quite bad. Um, we can also tell, you know, for me, what was pretty uh, decisive that the if you if you look at um, ice samples from the uh, polar ice caps, you can see that um, the, the the amount of CO two in the atmosphere in, in Western Europe plunges back down to um, sort of prehistoric levels with the collapse of the Roman state. Industry is gone. You know, trade has practically disappeared. Um, it, you know, the, 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 the courts have stopped doing their business. Soldiers are no longer paid. Uh, you know, it's, it, it is a state collapse. There's no question about it. Um, and yet that wasn't the end, you know, as, as at the end of the Bronze Age collapse or emerging out of the Bronze Age collapse, you have, you know, the sort of wreckage of the uh, Assyrian state that manages to hold together and they have their, they have their uh, adventurous um, trading middlemen, the Phoenicians who go off and so forth. They get, you know, they got stronger after the Bronze Age collapse. Similarly in Western Europe, uh, the church uh, gets stronger and it's sort of 
it's that organization that remains a sort of repository of of Roman uh, civilization, uh, you know, right up until, I mean, arguably even right up until now. Uh, but I, re- I remember you writing about this because I don't know that you mentioned it because you know as a right of the church as an institution when everything been been troubled and when everything just went down who remained the strong the strong one you know that brought people together that was the church you, you can say what is of it was as it might but it as you will and think of how how many bad feelings about the church if you will but it brought did bring people together in in the time of troubles. It did, and it also maintained the functions of, well, maybe not all the functions, it maintained many of the functions of the Roman government, and it still commanded uh, a level of prestige that, um, you know, no other no other surviving institution did. You know, there was an emperor in Constantinople. There was no longer any kind of emperor... You know, there was there there may have been a governor hiding out in Ravenna somewhere, um, an exarch, but there was still a bishop of Rome, um, you know, camped out uh, in the ruins of the old imperial capital, and you know that was maybe not all that was required for maintaining authority and prestige, but it was certainly. You know, it certainly did a lot. Then you have the sort of local bishops off in, in um, you know, further north who are basically, they've replaced Roman magistrates and they're sort of doling out justice and, and making <clears throat> making rulings within um, basilicas and so forth. So it's not only did it bring people together in some kind of, uh, you know, social sense, but also in a, in a political one. And... Um, you know, other institutions had to maintain, uh, for example, I'm thinking of things like, um, uh, you know, monarchies like that of Clovis and later Charlemagne. They have to maintain, uh, they're, they're, they're sort of borrowing a great deal of their prestige from church, from, from the church, and they are ruling with its sanction. And the way I interpret that, that, that that's that's a sort of ghost. I forget who called the, someone. Someone called the Roman Catholic Church the ghost of the Roman Empire, but that's I forget who it was. But that's that's sort of the the, the lingering spirit of the old empire, and um, it's arguably still it's arguably still with us. I was discussing this with some neighbors a while ago, and um, it's interesting. And like we talked about now, how people. To go through a traumatic experience or you know suffer some losses you know they're still instead of going away from the church that you know they go and get drawn towards a religious what's it called epiphany maybe i don't i don't remember the word for it but, you know they get a you know and again, I forget the word. I'm sorry about this but you know they they're drawn towards the church instead of away from it yeah well, why do you think that is? I don't know. I wish I could tell you. I mean, personally, I would, I would not be. I don't think I would be drawn toward the church. I would rather feel like they did this. You know, I don't know what. what I I don't know. I, I wish I could tell. I don't have an answer on the top of my head. Well, I mean, I think that this is worth this is worth pursuing. I mean, <clears throat> an older sense of 
well, let me start again. A contemporary, contemporary Western sense of religion, I think, grows out of the Reformation, and it isn't particularly ancient. Um, and it's the idea that there's a kind of private, personal, devotional experience that um, that that is sort of, you know, dwells sort of within you. Um, and that isn't what the older institution of the church was like, and it's not what other religions, maybe not all, but it's not what most other religions are like. Uh, it's certainly certainly not what the old Roman religion was like, uh, to take a very obvious example. Um, the older idea is it's much more of a social uh, experience that there's there's a sense of, you know, public, uh, corporate worship that brings a whole community together. And that the um, in the Christian context, the church is a, um, a centerpiece of, of uh, social and, and political life as for example if you think of um you know, think of a medieval village or something the 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 the, the, the parish church would be a sort of nexus of of uh of social interaction and and of um you know uh i'm, I'm not sure what the right phrase is but apart from apart from whole you know apart from hosting you know fairs or, or or festivals and so forth they would also be the place where you would go to for all um sort of in, you know you might go and play in the churchyard if you were a kid or uh you know you could meet someone there to to discuss some sort of you know important local matter or something uh there would be sort of the equivalent of town hall meetings in there you know it was a, it was a social nexus um, and I think that you know, in times of in in in, in times of crisis or or stress or what have you, I mean, I think that um, you know that's that's the kind of institution that you, you 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 know you might still find a vestige of that in most parts of the world, even though I think a lot of people now view religion as a kind of private internal uh, private internal thing. Speaking of religion, of course, and you do write about this as well. Another religion that was born around uh, in the medieval era is, of course, Islam, and which conquered most of what the the Arabic world. And uh, of course, in like, of course, this has been disputed. But like, to, to for the lack of better words, there was kind of a dark, not really, but you know, dark age in Europe. But the, the Islamic world would have an enlightenment, and they would have a bright age, if you will, in both yeah. science and they they would prosper both in trade, both in, you know, they they are like the opposite caliphate. They would have, you know, they would prosper with you know Islamic science uh, up until twelve fifty eight. And so let's talk about the, if you will, the not just a golden age, but golden ages of Islam. Yeah, I, having now that I've had some distance from writing the book, I think that I might have presented this uh, development a little bit differently. Um, what you are saying is exactly right, but the way the way I would approach it now is that there are two two things that I would stress. The first is that the the caliphate, the, the Abbasid caliphate did not begin by thinking itself 
uh, fundamentally superior to the uh, peoples and the, 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 the various her- heritages that it supplanted. Because if they had felt themselves superior, they would never have felt any kind of need to imitate them. So when you have uh, caliphs, of course, it's debatable the involvement of, of the caliph or whether it's sort of a more of a private thing. But when you when you have institutions and and scholars and so forth rummaging through uh, his historical and scientific um, libraries, trying to get you know high quality texts to translate them into Arabic, and and then you know writing letters to Constantinople asking for original manuscript, well, not manuscript, original texts of, um, uh, of, uh, you know, Aristotle and, and uh, company, you know, the, the, there was definitely a sense in which they felt that they had something to learn. And I think that that's an important lesson, you know, for anybody at any time. And this was, you know, the, the Abbasid Caliphate is sort of the, the superpower of the day. And yet they, they, they're, um, their elites still felt they had something uh, to learn from the past. That's an important lesson for us, I think. Second, the knock-on effect of the Abbasid revival of scholarship is is actually more um, more um, far-reaching than uh, you might think from my book. So the the first thing is that you find that yes, it's true. They're looking at sort of Greco Greco Roman and Persian heritage, and they're very interested in it. And that, you know, sort of encourages people to um, explore explore that stuff and to go even you know further and further afield. And you also get because they're demanding manuscripts from um, Constantinople. You also get a revival of interest in. Uh, you know the Greek, uh, Greek heritage within uh, Byzantium itself. That's very important. If, if I may, we in our episode about we did a while ago on the House of Wisdom, we talked about there were even people as far as the Anglo-Saxon world who came to the. I believe there was the Abbasid Athelrand among them who came to learn instead of going to Crusade, they came to learn from. From Islamic science, and you know, not just draw major crusade from them, but he wanted to bring back what he learned back to England, which is I yeah, exactly inspired both Roger and Francis Bacon with their work later. Mm-hmm. So that, that's an excellent example. The knock-on effect goes as far as as the Anglo-Saxon world that Alfred the Great is ultimately, uh, you know, his his sort of project of reviving. Um, Learning, it's ultimately uh, rooted in what the Abbasid uh, scholars started, and that's because from Byzantium you go to the Carolingian world with Alcuin of York and company, and then that's the form in which, uh, or that's the that's the example that Alfred the Great probably has in mind when he when he starts on his whole, uh, you know, his 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 whole sort of revival of learning thing. So you have. What, what you might call you have a series of sort of renaissances that start with the Abbasid, uh, start in the Abbasid Empire in the 8th century and proceed basically 
um, you know, without much, without much interruption, without, you know, many setbacks in, in the West, all the way up to what we call the Renaissance. So to think of the, um, to think of the Renaissance as this kind of unique moment that sort of comes out of either nowhere or it's just simply people like Petrarch reading Cicero or, or something that's completely wrong. It has a much larger or sort of much, much sort of deeper uh, genealogy. And it's part of a trend that has been going on and on and on for um, hundreds of years since, uh, since uh, the Abbasid heyday. And even before that, uh, you know, the, the Abbasids themselves are, as they tell it, they're, they're following the example of the Sasanian Persian kings who sponsored uh, uh, programs of learning and, and, and um, you know, uh, scholarship and so forth. And, and in particular, they cite the example of Khosrow I, who's a contemporary of uh, Justinian. So you can basically, you can see that in both directions, you can see that this, that the, that none, none, none of these examples or these sort of milestones in the history of civilization, none of them can be separated from one another. Each one builds on the last and each one is an example of somebody imitating something older. Hmm. And of course, I, I want to thinking of the Abbasids and collapse of civilization, they would, of course, eventually fall themselves by the Mongol invasion and in 1258. And I want yeah. to talk about the Mongols a little bit as well and their empire for a brief moment, because, you know, as again, to refer to an older episode on the Golden Horn, we talked about how one day, even though they're mostly people think about the rape, the murder, and, you know, how the atrocity is committed by the Mongols, they also did a a lot of good with it, especially I would say revive, or if you will, the Silk Road and trade again, once again to flourish under the Mongols' empire and the departure of Mongolia, as we discussed in our Mongol episode. Well, there's something to that, um, but um, it has to be. I think it has to be very carefully qualified. First of all, the Abbasid Caliphate was ultimately too big to last as a unit. I mean, it was a unit for a good while, but it wasn't going to hold together forever. So Egypt is sort of destined to go its own way. You already have the sort of Iberian, uh, Iberian um, Muslims in North Africa have, have long since sort of, faded away but you also have in the in the east you have um sort of Tur turkic and persian uh local dynasties who are sort of asserting their authority asserting their independence from from baghdad long before the the final destruction of baghdad and travelers you know in in uh, in the 11th and 12th centuries travelers through baghdad are already describing a city in in decline Decline, though, would not have characterized the condition of the Persian and Turkic dynasties. Uh, what they're up to is they're um, harking back to the Sasanian example again, um, 
they're often giving themselves sort of fanciful genealogies, connecting them with Persian kings and um, purporting to revive the, the traditions of, of uh, much more ancient Iranian kingship, although, of course, they are also Muslims. Um, and this is the context in which, in the 11th century, the Shahnameh uh, was written, the great Iranian national epic. And this is also the, this is the era of, of the great uh, Persian uh, viziers, um, like uh, the, the Barma kids. Uh, they all have names like, they, they inspire the, that, that guy uh, Jafar in, uh, in Disney's Aladdin. So they're, all, they're called like Jafar or something. Anyway, the, 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 um, the the Shahnameh is an excellent example because it's written under a Turkic um, king, Mahmud of Ghazna. And he's sort of writing, he's sort of grafting the this is the sort of Turkic dynasty that he's in charge of in onto the sort of the 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 tree of of a much larger and deeper Iranian history. In much the same kind of way, I think, as um Roman uh poets like Virgil are sort of sort of attaching <laughs> attaching Latin Roman uh culture onto a larger sort of Greek uh civilization is sort of appropriating it. The same thing is it's kind of the same thing that's happening over there. Now eventually the same thing happens to the Mongols. The the Mongols themselves ha- have uh, you know, you talk about an empire. Yes, they had an empire. I don't think they were particularly good on their own at running the empire until they got advisors, uh, either either within China or within uh, Iran. In the Iranian case, you have sort of um, advisors who are who are sort of bringing the Mongols into the larger sort of trend of of uh iranian civilization and 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 monarchy and um you know i think i think that was ultimately ultimately quite uh successful and much the same thing is happening in china the the mongols get cynicized uh and you know eventually they do get replaced but for for a while they sort of they rule as um legitimate uh, Chinese emperors and they're sort of, you know, written into the whole sort of uh, uh, Confucian uh, tradition there. Um, but yes, uh, that, that stuff eventually does happen, but long before that, the Mongol conquests are, uh, or, you know, the Mongol eruptions really considered quite horrific uh the 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 death toll is probably exaggerated in in all of the sources that we have but the you know the point is that you can you can construe that to mean that uh what happened was sort of unlike anything that anybody had ever experienced before and it provoked a great deal of doubt um the destruction of the abbasid caliphate was a disaster even though it had been in decline and you had had sort of local um local Iranian uh, and Turkic dynasties, you know, sort of basically going independent. The fall of Baghdad is a huge blow to um, uh, Muslim prestige 
and it's the end, effectively the end of the caliphate. Um, you know, there, there was supposedly a caliph in Egypt. There were the the Turkey the Turkish Sultan, the Mamluk Turks, I believe, at the time. Yeah, that that was not universally. Neither of those were universally uh, accepted, and to this day, there's no there's no caliph. Um, this causes a crisis within um, Islamic, uh, within Iranian and sort of larger Islamic civilization, both. And there are a couple of different um, reactions to it, uh, which I draw attention to in the book. The main, uh, I think the, the most sort of uh, um, impressive one is uh, Sufism. Sufism is a reaction to the the, the experience of of destruction and carnage and the the doubt and the the uh, um, you know uh, the questions raised by you know the this great Muslim empire that had failed much the same way as I think postmodernism or you know existentialism basically sort of the the latter half of 20th century philosophy is a reaction to the two world wars and the doubt um, and chaos I, I, provoked by them. I do believe that the early Ottomans, Ottoman sultans, or not, maybe not sultans at first, but you know, they they followed Sufism, at least in the beginning, the Ottomans in the, in the start of their empire. They did. It was extraordinarily um, influential. And it's the, it's the, um, sort of spiritual impetus for what many people believe to be the best uh, poetry in the world, the sort of the tradition of uh, Persian um, Persian mystical poetry under um, people like Sa'adi and Hafez. Uh, and of course, the, the, uh, the, the figure of Molavi, who's called Rumi uh, in the West. All of this comes out of the... Uh, the 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 experience of the decline of the caliphate and the and the Mongol eruption. Now, I want to suggest in my book that that that, that was ultimately a much more um, beneficial and and ultimately humane uh, reaction to that sort of chaos than what we have experienced in our own time, which is more like um, extreme radical doubt and skepticism about practically everything. But of course, the the other reaction that wasn't Sufism was was a kind of it's represented by um, people like Ibn Taymiyyah, who although he rejected relativism and so forth, he would he he sort of fell back on a much more um, what you might call an originalist vision of uh, Islam, rejecting philosophy rejecting uh mysticism and embracing a much more sort of puritanical um you know rigid form of it which is um uh, i think unfortunately that has sort of had the last word uh lately and uh, not roomy hmm. And we do have to jump a little bit in time because we did go into an entire civilization here in this episode. So, of course, which brings us to the Renaissance, which, you know, is the cause of the Crusades, which the disastrous Fourth Crusade in 1204, 
I've, I've talked about this in the very, at the end I've referred to one of the very first episodes on the podcast on the Sun, on the Byzantine Empire, episode three, I think, where we talked about how the Renaissance wouldn't really happen without the Fourth Crusade, but let's talk about the, um, for kind of a renewal in Europe, if you will, if that, if, if that's an appropriate word for it, that the Renaissance was. Well, I don't. I don't agree with that. I. Th- I think that. I think that what we call the Renaissance, if we think of it, if we think of it as reconnecting the two sort of halves of the old Roman Empire with one another and then with their past, I think that that would have happened uh, without the First Crusade. Sorry, without the Fourth Crusade, simply because um, the foundation for it was already laid in the form of the the so-called Macedonian Renaissance at Constantinople and the Carolingian uh, one uh, in Western Europe, both of which, as we say, have their impetus uh, or inspiration in the Abbasid, um, in the, the Abbasid Golden Age. The question for me, though, is what would it have been like what would it have been like if Byzantium had participated fully in it? If you look at, for instance, you compare the work of someone like Giotto or Duccio to uh, the uh, uh, the work, the frescoes, at least I think they're frescoes, the, the frescoes at uh, the Church of the Savior in Cora, the Cora Church in Constantinople, you can see that something like the first the you know the, the 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 sort of early stirrings of renaissance art in the west are already fully developed in byzantium and it's really much more uh uh beautiful and dynamic there so if the two if the two halves had been sort of you know mutually uh influencing one another uh, as would have happened, I think, without Fourth Crusade, I think we would have seen we would have seen something um, much more extraordinary. I think, yeah. I think it would be it, it, it sort of. I, I I don't know how you know I don't know how to describe it sort of counterfactually, but I think that if if Byzantium had participated fully uh, in European intellectual life, that it would have been just an extraordinary. Uh, uh, extraordinary development and I think it also would have if you think about I mean the influence of Arabic scholarship on the Renaissance I think is is always unfairly overlooked Byzantium would have been a more uh, it, it would have provided a sort of root into that as well especially like without without the geopolitical problems caused by the Fourth Crusade, there would have been a more sort of, uh, you know, unified uh, sort of Eastern uh, Mediterranean, and that would have been a sort of window onto the uh, uh, onto the East. But of course, the real the the real disruption. Of course, the Fourth Crusade was horrific and disastrous, but the real disruption is the the Mongol, uh, you know, the Mongol eruption that comes sort of uh, only about fifty years after it, right? So, um, 
you know, the real question is what would, what would life be, what would the world be like without, uh, you know, the Mongol destruction of, of Baghdad, you know, uh, that, that one, I, that one, I don't know how to answer. Yeah, we discussed this as well in the, in our episode of Hostess Wisdom. I'm sorry for referring to so many episodes in this in the in this one, but you know, there were so many scientific papers that were just thrown into the river and then lost forever. And what how would the world look like if we still had those papers that yeah. and and you know the scientific works that were lost because of the Mongol invasion? Would we be more developed? Would we would it have you know what what it's hard, like you said it's hard to imagine what the world would look like today. Yeah, but I mean, on the other hand, I think that we have in our own time, like we have two examples at least of just sort of like horrific destruction, right? We have the mm. two world wars. Mm. What was destroyed there? I mean, yeah, um, I think that I think that these. I think that these calamities are less a question of the destruction of specific texts or works of art or whatever. And it's more about what they do to human confidence um, and, and the way they disrupt our sense of place and, and purpose in the world and, and sap uh, you know, sort of uh, intellectual or moral vigor. Uh, I think I think that that is really the fundamental uh, concern. I mean, of course, <clears throat> there was a lot lost in the sacking of Constantinople. A lot of texts were destroyed. We know that, oh. and we know we know what had, we can we can point to things that uh, existed you know, before and that are now gone because they were burnt. Mm. Well, you know, uh, as sad as that is, I mean, sort of ultimately the, 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 the higher price was the, the, the dismemberment or the, the, the sort of permanent, uh, you know, permanent divisions within the church, mutual, um, mutual suspicion and, and, and resentment that lingers to this day, you know, stuff, stuff like that. Okay. As for Baghdad, I mean, it's like, we, we will never, uh, experience we, it. Well, yeah, we'll never experience it, but we're also never going to, I mean, the, the, the Muslim world remains fragmented to this day, mm. right? It's not just the texts that were lost. Like there, the, the idea of a, of a single sort of unitary, uh, Muslim world is gone, and it, it's not going to. Uh, it's not going to come back. You mentioned what we lost in the Second World War, and I don't bring up Joe Rogan for a moment, but and I do have problems with the way Joe Rogan been handling his podcast recently. I don't like the guy as much as I used to anymore, but you know. On, he had a scientist on, and I don't know, again, I don't know how reliable he is, but he mentioned when, it, when it, that, that space jump thing came about, that Churchill, before the Second World War, set off enough money. I just remember this when he mentioned what was lost in the Second World War, and he said that Churchill, before the Second World War, set off enough money for scientific research that could have gone, but instead it was used to 
the Second World War, of course, but we he's arguing that if the, these money actually went to what they were supposed to, we maybe could have figured out if we had celestial life, extraterrestrial life in out there in the universe by now, if if the money went that is put aside went to what they were supposed to do. Well, um I mean I, I'm not sure I mean, that, you know, again, I don't know how reliable he is, but, you know, that's just one example of, of, of what we lost because of the Second World War. I just thought about it when you mentioned it. Yeah. Uh, okay, yes. Now, on the other hand, <clears throat> there obviously was an enormous amount of tech uh, technology that came out of both world wars. Both world wars are also... Uh, they're, especially the second one, there are examples of, you know, total war in which the entire economy is, is sort of put into action and, you know, everyone and everything is sort of working towards, um, you know, uh, victory on the battlefield and, uh, no one is sort of, uh, left out that that is sort of that is still the way it is and in fact i think that the western economies are even more sort of um you know so it's no longer a wartime economy obviously but the point is that more people than ever before and more things and machinery you know you name it more people and things are now involved in in Western economies than at any other point ever. That, that comes out of the, that, 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 that economic outlook comes out of the two world wars as does a great deal of technology. Um, so obviously the legacy is still with us, but, and, and, and technological, uh, I guess what I'm saying here is technological and economic achievements have, have being ratcheted up significantly because of the two world wars. Question for me is, is that good? I think on the whole, you know, uh, I mean, it's really kind of hard to say. I think at this point though, many people are beginning to question again, uh, whether um industrial society is really worth it if it means that we destroy the planet as many people believe or is uh is a sort of you know ever expanding capitalist economy worth it if it demands that you work to such a degree that you can't have a family or that uh you know uh gdp has to uh uh, take, you know, enlarging GDP has to sort of take precedence over sort of any other, you know, any other economic, political, or or, or social uh, concern, you know, and like th- these things have all been analyzed, you know, th- long ago by Marx, and you know, I think there are very few Marxists left, but they they still sort of talk this way, uh, you know, these concerns haven't gone away. They're arguably more um, pressing now than they were before because there are simply more people. And, you know, we're now looking at 
we're now looking at our societies in the West after nearly 30 years, it's about 30 years, I think, of, of, you know, this idea of the, that, you know, we've won the Cold War, that uh, liberal democratic values are, are top, they, 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 they can't be beaten, they're going to spread inevitably, you know, it's just sort of everything's on the up and up from now on. And I think a lot of us are realizing that that isn't exactly true. Um, we shouldn't really have believed that we should have, we should have put more effort into what I'm calling, you know, uh, civilization, rather than uh, rather than technological development and 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 um, more efficient ways of killing one another and so forth. Um, but you know, I, I don't really have an answer for 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 these these questions. I just note that they. I guess I want to emphasize that they they haven't gone away, and now they're sort of back. Like they came back with a vengeance because of COVID and you know a variety of other things. You know, so when you're when you're sort of when you're sort of sitting alone in your house, you know, either actually alone or with your family, with you know, and you no longer have um, you know an office to go to or whatever, you know, like well what are you actually doing? You have to focus on things that are of like ultimately much higher concern. Right. And I think that I, I, part of my, part of my argument in the book is that we've sort of neglected these things over the past, uh, uh, past generation or so, if not longer. And, you know, we should, you know, we should think about them more and not neglect them. Hmm. Um, I actually want to kind of end and this project, but just I don't know if you've seen the TV series. There was a scientific series, sci, sci, sci-fi, sorry, sci-fi episode. The series, they, there is an episode that they travel back to the twenty-first century in in a series called the Orville, and in the in the last season, and they talked about that. Now, what is it? There's a quote that kind of stuck with me. It says, "This one of the guys said, no wonder the twenty-first century has a bad rap, you know, a bad reputation.'" Would you agree with that statement? Do you think that future historians would look at twenty first century as kind of a bad rap in a sense? Twenty first century? No, century. Sorry, the century we are in now. That that do do you think that we the future historians would look back at our time, and you know, kind of think uh, it wasn't a great time to live in, you know? What do you think uh, about this? I don't know if they would say that, but I, I mean, I, I think that we've now seen enough of the 21st century to say that going into it, you know, from the end of the last century, that we were naive, that we uh, let we let things slide, that we uh, allowed our societies to deteriorate and we are paying the price now now I, we are richer i don't i don't you know i don't want to pretend otherwise we are all on the whole or on average i guess we are we are richer we have more access to information more access to food um more numerous the world is more populous there are fewer there are fewer famines, people live longer, you know, there are many, many, many measurements in which we could say we are doing better than possibly ever before. 
I think Steven Pinker talks a lot about this stuff. However, there are, there are some key things, I think, some very important things in which we have really seriously failed. Um, and I represent these in the books, for example, like we, we don't, there's no, there's no way to measure happiness. Yeah. Can't do that. You can, however, measure the opposite. Suicides are, you know, like embarrassingly and distressingly high in, in, in the West, especially for very young people. Things like friendlessness. You know, why is this happening? The sense of isolation has, has grown. You know, loneliness uh, has grown since the, since the end of the 20th century. Family formation is, or household formation is down. Birth rates are down. Um, you name it, but pick, pick, fill in the blank, pick up, pick other measures of this sort. Um, why does it seem as though we have failed to transmit any kind of culture in the, in the West? Why does our culture feel as though it has either deteriorated completely or collapsed <clears throat> uh, or, or, or that it's sort of significantly uh, sort of dumbed down? Um, you know, everybody says that now. People, you know, people, people who talked that way in the 1990s were laughed at. Not anymore. Like, something is clearly wrong. Uh, you could also cite, like, I don't, you know, I don't like getting into sort of culture war stuff, but the mere, the mere existence of the culture war in its present form is a very serious problem, I think, especially in this sort of Anglo, Anglo-American world. I think, I think it's mainly an Anglo-American phenomenon that sort of pollutes other places, but you have, um, you, you have large factions of society that are quite isolated from one another. And who don't even, who can't even understand one another. They're they're talking a fundamentally different uh, language, and many of the claims that are made make no sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, I cannot conceive of, uh, you know, having grown up in the late twentieth century, this part of the world is less demonstrably and obviously less racist and 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 intolerant and so forth than at any other time. In, in in its history, very obviously. Um, it is also a time in which um, freedom of speech and so forth is at an all-time high. Maybe not yeah. in Russia right now, but yeah. Right, but like, how do I know this? Well, first of all, if there were no freedom of speech, you would not be able to complain that you had no freedom of speech, right? Mm-hmm. So the more complaining you hear, the more... Right. likely it is that like the freer you actually are in, in, in societies without freedom of speech, there are no complaints. So, you know, we, th- this is obvious, but everybody seems to be upset about something. And, you know, and I don't... if I may, sorry, uh, I want to go back Please. a little bit because you talked about dumbing things down. And I think this is true, especially in the children's TV series. TV programs that you see in today's world in the in the, in the twenties now, but when I was young in the nineties, you know, even you had people who though you were entertained, like Sesame Street, for example, you were you had fun, you had learned some, tried to learn something. But in today's, 
as yeah. I was looking at some clips from you know today's children TV shows, and it's almost none of that. It's just dumbed down, yes. pure entertainment. Though we of course had some of that in our time as well. It's still there's these some TV shows where you try to learn, like they try to teach you something. And Mr. Rogers, though he's kind of dull in today's age, I'm not gonna lie, he was a fine example of this. But in today's yeah, so it's age, not just that. If I may, if I may. Yeah. It's not just that Mr. Rogers is trying to teach you something. It's not just that. Uh, it's that Mr. Rogers himself represents an, an ideal of sort of civic life that it doesn't exist anymore. And I don't, I, mean, I don't, that was I just don't, one example of money. I don't yeah. think of, but you know. Yeah, so like the idea that there's like a man who has an orderly house and, you know, he carefully changes his shoes when he, when he goes in yeah. and, and you know, he, he his, everything is nicely organized. You know, I think that a lot of people do want to teach their kids that kind of sense of order and decency and so forth. I don't think that it has disappeared from... Uh, life, but it has retreated into what I guess is an entirely private sphere. That there's no longer a consensus that Mr. Rogers represents an ideal that we should all aspire to. That's that's what I would say. I, I, and and you can see it also. Like I was shocked to watch for some reason I had never seen it before the peanuts Christmas mm. or whatever it's called, you know, like the Char not peanuts, Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown's Christmas. Um, Charlie Brown's Christmas comes from the sixties. And I watched it this la last, it's a cartoon and it isn't what I would say. I wouldn't call it sort of overtly Christian, although it does have long quotations from the Bible in it, from the, Christmas story. But the idea is that these kids are trying to sort out the true meaning of Christmas and what they light upon, or one of them does is the idea that it's something, you know, something beyond materialism, something, something beyond material concerns. It's not about, you know, buying and selling things. It's something quite, it has a much deeper spiritual concern, ultimately a very simple, trivial message you might say, but a message which has completely vanished from uh, public life and making a cartoon now in which people are trying to put on a Christmas show and so forth. It just wouldn't happen, but it also, it wouldn't happen with any religion. There would be no, there would be no, um, there would be nothing aired in public that would suggest that, that there was any kind of particularly like deeper spiritual uh, metaphysical significance to anything. And I think this is true because as you see in Star Wars for example, to mention something for and one example, the new Star Wars, they, they let's say Brodu or I hate the name but Baby Yoda if you will. I guarantee you he was made to sell merchandise. That's the only reason he was made for the show that they think Disney Star Wars thinking, you know, we don't we yeah. to sell toys now with this guy and that's Let's create something that people love and people, you know, maybe not relate to, but you know, people find super cute and it's going to be, a, you know, yeah, I think, I think you're right. About that's it. the only thing, reason I think he was created. So, 
more merchandise. And I'm not saying the original Star Wars like wasn't like that, you know, but in the, in today's, you know, with the in episode eight, which was horrendous, you see this you no know, little birds kind of thing that was that Chewbacca eats. They're in the scene for one second, but after the scene, you see thousands of merchandise. Not maybe not thousands of over exaggerating, yeah. but you see all this merchandise with these bird-like things that in the Star Wars shops and Disney stores, or whatever you know. So yeah, it's, I mean, honestly, this is this kind of thing is 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 liable to turn you into a Marxist mm. because it's just what it is is the sort of invasion. <laughs> In, invasion of market forces into, uh, you know, what what was ultimately a kind of, um, you know, modern mythology, or a, a you know a spiritual a story of spiritual significance. That's what Star Wars hmm. uh, was. It's kind of like Joseph Campbell, um, you know, uh, sort of almost sort of Jungian. Uh, stuff which you know uh, kind of silly if you think because it's, it's it, it it looks like a a western in space or something like that but it, it ultimately yeah. has a kind of it, it does have a kind of spiritual um undertone uh and a sort of mythological uh mythological aspect to it which is obviously highly appealing but then you, you turn it into just this operation to make money it's just you know it's embarrassing I mean, I'm not saying that Mandalorian isn't good, but it's just, it's obvious why he was created for just one example of consumerism. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, I think we have to fight this. I mean, the, like, I think a lot of people, a lot of people will probably criticize my book for the fact that I don't, you know, there's not a lot of sort of saber rattling and I'm not mm. declaring war on consumerism and so forth. But like, I, I just don't think that that's my job. I'm not that kind of a person. But the I do feel angry about those things, and I, I you know I think that we have allowed it's just part of a larger problem. We have allowed sort of um, consumerism, neoliberal uh, claptrap, and all this stuff to just to grow out of control at the expense of other far more important things. And you know, let's just you know let's just give it a rest for now. So like, and uh, this kind of more fun idea. I mentioned we talked about a lot of civilization kind of collapse, and in the and this is kind of relatable, I think. But in Futurama, in the first episode, you do see when Fry is in there, frozen. You do see him. So all this civilization being broke down, broken down over thousands of years that it's frozen. And you see all these civilizations re- rebuilt and again and again and again built over, and I did. Do you think that's what in store for the future? Like, if, if a nuclear war would happen, let's say, do you think like what we see in Futurama, for example, for just one example, do you think that we will eventually rebuild and again and again, like with the Roman Empire, like with the you know the Abbasid Caliphate, Ottomans, you know, the Middle Ages, the Holy Roman Empire, etc., all the empires that rose and fell? Do you think, let's say, we almost annihilate the world in a nuclear war? Do you think that we will be have the ability to be able to rebuild civilization again? I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what nuclear war would really look like or or do. But if 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 we're th- if we're talking about sort of total collapse, mm. 
we've seen this before. I mean, the the the, the collapse of the Bronze Age, um, you know, that's an entire world system to, that just comes crashing down, right? Uh, we've seen stuff like that on on smaller scales with the sort of ebb and flow of civilization and, and sort of you know city states in places like Mesopotamia uh, or dynastic China or the, the 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 rise and fall of 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 the Egyptian state and its civilization at the same time. It's not always the same everywhere. There are differences, um, but you know. Despite uh, the total destruction, the complete collapse, the, the complete uh, forgetfulness of, of literacy, even um, forgetfulness of of, uh, of architecture, everything in in say the Greek Dark Age, um, civilization still came back. As long as there are people, as long as there is some historical memory. I think that, you know, there's still some kind of uh, hope. Uh, and if you think about the work of um, the work of Alfred the Great or, uh, you know, um, Charlemagne and, 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 and company or Alcuin, more like, uh, you know, we can we can recover from particularly sort of dark, you know, rough periods. It has happened before. It can happen again. It might take a long time. Um, you know, the, the, the Carolingian, uh, revival, uh, you know, it's sort of debatable whether that took a long time or not. I mean, Charlemagne is sort of 400 years or so after the first, um, sacking of, of Rome, 400 years seems like a long time to us, but, you know, maybe it isn't in, in the, uh, greater yes. scheme of things and some, and some civilizations, some cultures uh, remain stable for uh, longer uh, than others, but there won't be what, what I will say also, there won't be a revival. There won't be any, um, there won't be any uh, uh, recovery or rebirth, whatever you want to call it until we can rediscover a sense of, uh, rootedness in space and time, which is what I make a great deal of in the book. There has to be some sense that you know we're we're here. We have we have um, ancestors here. We have descendants here. We owe something to all of them. We belong on this planet for the long term. We want to have something to hand on to our children. That sort of thing. These aren't uh, popular ideas anymore, and I think that that that's the sort of that's 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 the root of of what I call uh, civilization. And until until that sense, you know, that it's really worthwhile to be here, that there we have a place and a purpose in space and time, we have something that we owe the past and the future. Um, I, I would not be optimistic about a revival. I mean, this talks about the scheme. Before we run up, I want to talk about this. Talks about the slow scheme of the scheme of things and how for the years wasn't that much. I mean, you, our species has been around for the past ten over ten thousand years, but before it's just maybe five thousand 
5,000 years. If it was 5,000 years almost before we started what we call civilization. Mm-hmm. And in that kind of span, if you think almost, well, 20,000 years now that we existed, if you roughly, I'm poor at maths, but you know, it's roughly thinking that that's not a long, and they have only been the mod, modern age, it's only been around for half a century, maybe, one century, what we consider yeah. the modern era. So it's not really that long that we existed as a human race or, or a civilization in a Okay, so what does that tell you? To me, it, it, there, it, it's a couple of things. I, I kind of have a, a bee in my bonnet about this. The way things are is not an indication that they are going to stay that way. That's the first thing, okay? So uh, it, it was definitely our own direct ancestors as a species who made cave paintings in the, in the Upper Paleolithic. It's definitely the same people. Okay, um, we are related to them. They are anatomically, you know, anatomically modern human beings, but they are very different from us. We are different from them. They are different from us. We have many things in common, obviously, but we are different. Why are we different? Well, I mean, that's one of the things I try to answer in the book. We we are civilized now, or at least we should be, and we try to be. It's a different way of life. We don't move around as much. Although but won't, some... you, won't you argue with Charles Tinkerwell that we aren't as civilized as we like to be? But that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, we aren't right now. But 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 compared to the Upper Paleolithic, you know, that's that's a different that's a different story. I mean, I agree that you know, in 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 one sense, I am a cultural relativist, like um, what is his name, Franz Boas, in a sense that. You know, uh, an Egyptian of the old kingdom, a uh, Chinese bureaucrat of the, the Tang dynasty, an Abbasid uh, scholar, you know, they are, they are all equally civilized and they are all equally civilized in the same way. Okay. We have fallen short of that ideal. That's true. But we are nevertheless not at the, we are nevertheless not at the uh, level of the, Upper Paleolithic. So things are not going to just stay the same. We have to, if we want to preserve institutions or customs or whatever it is that we want to preserve the way they now are, we will have to exert far more work, far more effort. We have to exert far more effort than we have been lately to make that um, the case. A lot of people, I think, have, have got onto this idea. Uh, and it tends to focus on the idea of the decline of democratic institutions. Well, everything will have a tendency to decline if you don't uh, make more effort to shore them up, right? They don't just decline for no reason. Oh, sorry, they don't just, you can't just sort of wind them up and let them go and then they stay that way. You have to put more effort into it. That we, you know, we really need to take that stuff more more seriously. Um, but, uh, when you think of the amount of time you, 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 you made a good point about time, you know, for most of our history, we have not been what I would call civilized for most of our history. We have been, you know, the exact opposite. 
Additionally, the crusade is one example of money. Sorry, say that again. The crusade is just one example of money that where we are not civilized. Right, and and for a far longer period in the remote past, warfare was even more violent than 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 it is in in the you know in the civilized era. Um, but additionally, you know, we think of something like art. Leave aside warfare. There's more that you know the 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 period of the Upper Paleolithic during which time there was no civilization. That was a far more prolific and creative period than the one we have lived through over the past five thousand years. So, what do I draw from that? Again, we are more similar. People now living are more similar to people who lived five thousand years ago. Six thousand years ago, whenever to, you know, whenever you want to place the beginning of civilization, we are more similar to them than we would like to admit. There has not, there has never been um, a fundamental break uh, with the past, and the this the modern era. If you know, some people date the modern era from ni- the nineteen twenties, maybe nineteen twenty one, nineteen twenty two. Uh, the modern era is a is a blip tiny insignificant blip there there may have been many changes in technology and so forth but it has not changed our nature we are still fundamentally the same people and what what worked in the past uh, will work again i think we're gonna round it up there thank you so yes, much yeah, I, i'm sorry i've been i've been babbling the that's whole time. fine i love what your conversation so before we go do you have any social media you want to share any where can people find your book and which they absolutely should read it's a 200 pages long you're reading a couple of days it's an absolute well worth it if you like this episode you should definitely check out this book and then all the links you want me to put in the description below thanks very much for having me here it's a great discussion do you have uh so this has been about that as well we are available on Twitter under H 12 Instagram with that H12. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts. Please make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Also, write a little review on Apple iTunes or iTunes if you have the time. That would help us out a lot. My name is Alan, and I'll see you next time.